0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining and welcome to the latest episode of Spotlight, a PEI media podcast that delves into the very latest in private markets investing. I'm Helen De Beer, Editor of Private Equity International, and today we'll be discussing the findings of the latest PEI 300, our annual ranking of the largest GPs in market. I'm here with Adam Lay, Senior Editor for Private Equity EMEA, Alex Lin, Hong Kong Bureau Chief, and Carmela Mendoza, Senior Reporter at PEI. This year's PEI 300 ranking is a particularly interesting one, as it takes into account the busiest fundraising period in the history of private equity. For those who are unfamiliar with the way the ranking is calculated, the figures are based on the amount of private equity direct investment capital raised over the previous five year period. So in this year's case, from the 1st of January 2017 until the 1st of April 2022. The 300 firms that made up this year's list raised a record-breaking $2.6 trillion between them, while the minimum amount needed to appear on the list at all rose from $1.55 billion last year to $1.85 billion in 2022. So across the board, we've seen a staggering amount of capital raised in a market that is absolutely swarming with fundraising activity. Another interesting thing about this year's list is that a new firm has come out on top for the first time in a few years. KKR now leads the ranking after raising $126.5 billion in the last five years. And this is a record-breaking sum in itself, beating the previous highest record, which was set by Blackstone in 2020, by more than 36%. KKR's total was also 53% larger than this year's second-place total, Blackstone again, with $82.46 billion. And it accounted for more than 20% of the total raised by the entire top 10 list. So with all that said, let's jump right into the discussion about what we found on this year's ranking and some of the interesting points worth highlighting. So KKR's win, which was a first for the company, wasn't the only noteworthy thing about this year's list. There were also a lot of newcomers who managed to secure a spot on the ranking for the first time after engaging in various different fundraising strategies. So Carmela, shooting over to you, could you tell us a little bit more about these new firms and how you think they found success in 2022?
1: Sure, Helen. Um, So we've got 25 newcomers in this year's ranking. And there's a variety of firms in the list. So we have China-specific, China-focused firms. We have specialists as well. So I'd like to draw your attention to a firm called Eastern Bell Capital. So they're based in Shanghai. They're number 158 in the ranking. And last year, we named them one of the five Chinese GPs to watch. Uh, So this is the first time they're, they're making it to PI 300. And they raised over... 3.5 3.5 billion during the qualifying period, the five year period. Another firm that I'd like to highlight is Blue Owl Capital. So they're number 42. And we all know this firm because of the merger that happened last year between Owl Rock and then Dial, the GP stakes manager Dial. So at number 42, the firm gathered 16.3 billion across its funds over the five-year period. And when we um, were listening to their earnings call earlier this year, they said that a chunk, a significant chunk of the capital raised came from the private wealth channel. So that that is quite interesting. In terms of sector-specific firms, definitely we've seen sports-focused PE firms come up in the ranking. And two of these, uh, Dallas-based Arctosports, Partners and New York firm Redbird Capital Partners are very interesting. So Arctus was founded in 2019 by a former partner of secondary's firm Ian Charles and David O'Connor, who is the former CEO of Madison Square Garden. So I think what really catapulted Arctus to to the ranking is uh, the 2.9 billion that they raised for their debut fund, and it is, if I if I'm not mistaken, still the largest you know first time fund that we have tracked. So, they closed that fund in, in October 2021, and that's a billion more than their original target. And for Redbird, they're the owner of Toulouse Football Club, uh, Boston Red Sox, and Rajasthan Royals, an Indian cricket team. And they held a final close last year on 2.6 billion for their flagship fund redbird 2019 if uh, anyone was listening to this wants a deeper dive into sports focused pe firms we did a, a cover story on it in november 2020 before all this began so it is quite interesting to read that but yes these firms i think are very good to highlight and lots of newcomers in the list and i expect to see more in, in the coming years
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting there that you mentioned Eastern Bell Capital, and I think possibly a couple of other China based firms. Actually, this would be a good way to lead into my next question to Alex, which is something else we found this year was that there were a lot of Asia Pacific focused managers, which managed to stake a much bigger claim than in previous years. So, Leading on from how Carmela thinks some of the newcomers have appeared on the list for the first time, why do you think that Asia-Pacific focus managers have managed to create such a big presence for themselves on the ranking in 2022?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting one. So I guess, uh, first of all, we should sort of frame this by saying that there are 48 managers in this year's ranking compared to 43 last year. The amount of capital raised by Asian managers as well this year is 21% more than the qualifying five-year period for last year. The biggest kind of entrant this year is China reform fund management. They are not On this list, because they suddenly raised 26 billion in the space of one year, the fact that they're a new entrant to this ranking actually reflects just kind of the general opacity of China's private equity markets. So there are some estimates out there that they're about 10,000 or 10,000 plus Chinese PE managers out there. But uh, obviously, because some of them have state ties, and, and some of them just generally focus on the domestic market, so they don't feel sort of the need to engage with, with international LPs, a lot of them kind of stay beneath the radar. So China Reform Fund Management is one of those that has kind of entered for the first time, and obviously they've raised just massive amounts of capital. We saw a similar story last year as well. So China Merchants Capital is another firm, quite similar. So they're both state-owned enterprises, or I should say, some subsidiaries of state-owned enterprises. So they raise a lot of government capital as well as capital from domestic institutions like banks, um, insurance companies, and so on. We don't actually take into account government capital in PEI 300. So if we did, they would be even larger. Just a, as an example, two of China reform fund management's largest funds, they state on the website that they're actually 150 billion yuan in size, which is... Would be the equivalent of about 22 US billion. So those would be some of the largest private equity funds ever raised. But given that some of that capital does come from the government, it's not included on the list. So it's worth bearing in mind that they're massive, but actually their kind of true firepower and scale is even larger than the PR300 ranking will, will depict. I want to draw your attention, I guess, to one of the kind of most significant climbers this year, which is Bering Private Equity Asia. So they've climbed 19 places to 35th place this year. They've raised 20 billion over the past five years. Our readers, I guess, will know the name, not only because they're one of the largest homegrown firms in Asia, but obviously because they were bought by EQT earlier this year. That transaction is expected to go through in Q4. We're not exactly sure yet how it's going to be structured, but it looks like next year they actually won't be on the list. So EQT, which itself is obviously very high on the ranking this year, could be even higher because if you take into account the amount of capital that bearings raised, that should get added to EQT's total. I guess, kind of looking forward for Asia, obviously a a massive amount of capital has flown into it in the past, and that kind of reflects the sort of natural evolution of the market. And obviously, you know, international LPs becoming more familiar with it. Looking forward, it's unclear whether we'll see such an increase next year. A lot of kind of placement agents that we've spoken to have said that geopolitics, sort of the travel, ongoing travel bans for Hong Kong and China, and obviously the the regulatory crackdown that happened in in the middle of last year and, and appears to be continuing has really diminished appetites for Chinese PE and by extension Asia, because China is obviously Asia's largest PE market by a long way. So a lot of the people that, that I've been speaking to lately on the fundraising side of things are saying that the landscape out there is, is much, much more difficult. And there are a lot of funds that they expect not to be raised. So we could actually see quite a different story next year if some of that feeds through into um, fundraising statistics.
0: Great. Thank you, Alex. That was very, very illuminating. So, Adam, let's come over to you. There were some specific strategies that have maintained a strong presence in recent years and they've continued to appear on the ranking in 2022. Could you tell us a little bit about some of those?
3: Yes, absolutely. Happy to, Helen. So, I guess a couple of those strategies would be tech. So the kind of emergence and the rise of tech specific focused GPs, which have really kind of broken into the top 10 last year and this year, you know, continued to maintain their presence. And the other strategy would be the kind of continued evolution of uh, fund-to-fund firms. So obviously fund fund strategies have been evolving for a long time now. That won't come as any sort of news to our listeners. But firms that are active in fund fund strategies continue to not only appear in the PEI 300 but rise up the ranks. And while we don't count funder funds' capital as capital towards the PEI 300, the PEI 300 only counts capital to be directly invested into businesses. It's, it's notable to see such firms as Partners Group, Adam Street Partners, Ardian, just to name a few, who are all stalwarts of the PEI 300 and have risen up the ranks for this year as well. Just to give you a little bit of a figure, firms that have active funder fund strategies raised around $103 billion in. In total, in this year's PEI 300, and that accounts for around 4% of the total capital. The question really is looking forward, you know, how relevant will fund to fund strategies remain, particularly with challenges from different fronts? You know, you have digital platforms, and readers will know some of the names that are offering individual retail, high net worth, and other investors um, access to diversified portfolios of private equity stakes. You have the burgeoning secondaries market, which is, you know, coming into its own as a way to get diversified exposure to private equity and beat the j-curve because capital is invested from day one and you also have this kind of shift to separately managed accounts so large institutional investors foregoing their kind of commitments to commingled fund fund products and shifting to funds of one for example and many traditional fund fund players are moving in this sma direction ardian and alpinvest come to mind so that will certainly be interesting to watch Returning to tech-focused funds, Toma Bravo, Clearlake, Insight Partners, all in the top 10 of this year's PI 300. Clearlake, in the news recently, it raised $14 billion for its latest flagship fund. And that was off the back of the closing of around five continuation fund vehicles, continuation fund vehicles being where a manager takes assets from an existing fund and moves them into a continuation vehicle that it continues to manage while giving uh, liquidity to its LPS and this can be a great way of increasing dpi so returning cash back to LPS LPS who may be considering whether to or not back the managers next strategy and so giving those LPS cash can be a, a great way to help with future fundraising um, insight partners this year jumped 18 places to tenth place it raised 20 billion dollars for its latest flagship at the beginning of this year and it's reported to be already talking to investors Investors about the next flagship, and is also in market with two follow-on funds. Follow-on funds being vehicles that take stakes in existing portfolio companies that the the GP manages. So tech uh, certainly an exciting space to watch, Adam.
0: Great, thanks, Adam. That's great. And just as we round up the discussion, let's open the floor up to everyone. If there are any other particular strategies or areas of interest that we saw on this year's ranking that perhaps haven't been there previously, or that have been there previously but have started to grow in scope. If anyone's got anything they'd like to to say on that, that would be great.
1: Maybe just something to highlight, Helen, we were fortunate to be able to speak to Alyssa Wood, who is a partner in KKR's client and partner group. And of course, they were thrilled that they were actually on top of PEI 300. But she did highlight that You know, over the last 12 months, and this is across strategies and not just PE, they raised a little over 130 billion of new capital organically. And a good thing to note there is about 45% of that came from strategies that didn't exist five years ago. So I think if you look at KKR's strategies right now, you would see tech. Growth geography specific funds as well. So you see with the larger managers in, in our PEI 300, a lot of them have come up and established, created new fund series over the last five years. And that's really proven to be the reason why they, they've grown in scale and in capital raising over the last few years. Also, if you look at the top 10 with all of the listed managers, a lot of them have said in the recent earnings calls that looking ahead, private wealth will make up a larger portion of their inflows in the next five years. Just to stick to KKR, they said they expect that to grow to 30 to 50 percent of their annualized fundraising volumes in the coming years. So that is another channel to watch and which we have covered extensively also in PEI.
0: Great. And um, Adam or Alex, did you have anything else that you wanted to, to say on that?
1: just, I mean, sticking on the theme of KKR,
3: as Carmela was talking about, for KKR, one interesting point that we picked up on is that perpetual capital accounted for um, a huge amount of the the figure that they raised over the last five years. So perpetual capital being essentially non-closed end fund structures. So in other words, the money does not need to be returned to LPs at the end of uh, 10 years or 10 plus 1 plus 1 or or what have you. KKR actually added $150 billion of perpetual capital in the year to end of September, accounting for a third of their total AUM and marking an eight times increase year on year. Blackstone, equally, um, about half of the the capital that they raised in the 12 months to October last year was perpetual capital. Why do GPs like this? Various reasons. They don't have to come back to market with a raise. It can be a very attractive form of capital to invest and for shareholders in particular, seen as a very stable base of capital and therefore stable in fees as well. So perpetual capital strategies, something making a an appearance in this year's PI 300 and likely to make an appearance in the years ahead. One other important thing to note about the
2: PI 300 this year is we're starting to see sort of industry consolidation actually having a tangible impact on the position of, of some of these firms. If I just take, for example, EQT and its acquisition of LSP, which is a European life sciences firm, their total was actually boosted by about 1.94 billion through that acquisition. So that's all the capital that LSP would have raised over that period had it been still a separate firm. If you look at the ranking this year that there's actually only 1.87 billion separating EQT and CVC. So if EQT hadn't purchased LSP, then it might actually sit below CBC in the rankings. So we're starting to see that have an impact. And obviously, you know, you've got Carlyle, which purchased Abingworth as well, which is another example. And we're seeing other firms as well, pick up life sciences firms, which seems to be sort of, I guess, the hottest new strategy for firms to expand into. I mean, if we look just outside of PE as well, obviously, you know, EQT pushed into real estate more with this acquisition of Exeter, and then obviously all these big firms as well, picking up secondaries units. You've got CVC uh, purchasing Glendower, Areas Management with uh, Landmark. Obviously, secondary capital and, and real estate capital isn't counted within the PEI 300, but it goes to show that the industry consolidation and I guess you know inorganic growth is starting to pick up. So we could see more of that in private equity and PEI 300 in, in future years as
0: well. For more insight into this year's PEI 300, readers can find the full ranking along with all of our additional analysis. By navigating to the Rankings and Reports section at privateequityinternational.com, you can also download the full June issue of Private Equity International from our website. For Private Equity International, I'm Helen De Beer, and thanks very much for listening.